Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5. The Christians that Peter writes to in Asia Minor have been experiencing a pretty good degree of suffering, religious opposition, persecution. They were being killed. They were being tortured. They were being jailed. And yet the church was thriving. Never want to forget that. In the midst of the suffering, the church was thriving. It's interesting what Peter does not say. He does not say, band together, and I want you to sue these people. He does not tell them to start a Christian union to protest. But he challenges the church to faithfulness and endurance in the midst of suffering. And now he moves to church leaders to shepherd in a way that is befitting of their position. It's hard for me to even use the term evangelical today because it's so misused, but the American evangelical church has witnessed its favor waning in the past couple decades. Now, let's be honest. Some of the negative reputation is earned, right? And some of it is not being in lockstep with the cultural mindset. Uh, The fall of Ravi Zacharias, Bill Hybels, James McDonald, Brian Houston, and Mark Driscoll provide plenty of fodder for critics. Now, these leaders experienced public fails, and it's not my goal to pile on, but to ask ourselves, you know, what can we learn from that? Frankly, if these leaders had shown some humility, some honesty, perhaps the fallout would not have been as as bad or as much. But when leaders hold on to power, blame shift, obfuscate, they are easy targets for ridicule. No pastor, no leader is immune to pride, to power grabbing, to treating people as objects to move the machinery along. And listen, I've had to fight my own battles with the flesh. We don't have enough time to get into all of it, but the flesh can prompt me sometimes to not speak up when I should or wanting to be liked more so than faithful. Now listen, I know that these temptations are not unique to pastors, right? We all struggle with stuff like this. And pastors don't need sympathy, but the church needs godly leaders. And Peter knew that leaders must lead well for the church to thrive during this time of hardship that he was writing. And I would add, 
certainly today as well. Recently I heard, you may not know of him, but I listened to Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in Dallas. Janet and I actually had occasion to visit the church several years ago. He had to step down, at least temporarily, from his position. It was not because of a moral failure, um, but something that the elders felt like he should take some time to address. And in listening to Chandler's response, his words were humble, straightforward, and honest. He did not sugarcoat. And I was thinking to myself, that is a leader worth following. He's not perfect. He's made mistakes. And he certainly doesn't deserve to be hung out to dry. But when leaders are honest about their failures, growing, maturing, learning, humble, don't we all benefit from that? We do. And so I think Peter writes this section to help leaders avoid some obvious pitfalls. So let's all stand as we take a look at our passage. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. If you've been with us for a while, you'll not be surprised. This is as far as I'm going to get today. All right. When Peter says, I exhort you, he is connecting this section in chapter 5 with the previous section on suffering, on persecution. And so because the church is being persecuted, we need to make sure that our leaders are doing well. And he addresses the leaders with the term elders. Now, what we actually see is that Peter uses a variation of three different words to describe church leaders. He, he uses presbyteros for elder, poimano, the verb form for pastor in verse 2. Uh, it's often translated shepherd, and then he uses a Greek word that's often translated overseer that speaks of watching over a congregation in care and, and protection. Now, these words describe the same position. These are not three different words describing three different positions in the church. They're just giving an emphasis upon the position. For instance, elder speaks of the wisdom and maturity of the leaders. And pastor speaks to the feeding and protection by the leaders. Titus 1, verses 5 through 7 
uses elder and overseer together. Acts 20 uses all three words together when speaking about the same people, the same person. All elders are called to perform various functions, but within the elders, some are gifted differently and they have corresponding responsibilities. I want you to notice that the term for elder is plural. A plurality of leadership is implied. Elder is used in the context of the church 18 times within the New Testament. Four times it's used in a singular form when it refers to one person, such as in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, when it says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So obviously, it's talking about one person among the elders. Fifteen times it's used in a plural sense in Acts 15.4, the elders at the church at Jerusalem, or in Acts 20.17, the elders at the church in Ephesus. And this use of elders implies, again, a plurality of leadership in the church. Now, this makes sense when you think about just having one guy to perform all of the responsibilities that the group is to do. It would make sense that this needs to be spread out, okay? Now, it's not that the church cannot have a lead elder, and we in our church call that pastor, but a pastor, or whatever you want to call him, is never to have authority alone, as if he's not accountable to the rest. It may surprise you, I get a review by the other elders. The elders can fire me, as they should. They can call me on the carpet. We don't agree on everything. We can talk about it. And so they're certainly not yes men within our culture. And so it, it guards against this authoritarianism. It also provides continuity when the pastor or another elder leaves because you have, again, a group that can see this thing through. Just like Janet and I were on uh, sabbatical for two months this summer. This is, I think, our third week back. And what happened to the church? It did great. Probably did even better. All right? And that's the way it should be, is that there are leaders who step up and do what needs to be done. Uh, some leaders might take it as a cut, but I take it as a compliment that the church does well when I'm gone. That's a good thing, right? So the point is that God has built within the church a plurality model, and this is, I think, a protection plan. Now, some churches operate this way, and they may not call their leaders elders. That's no big deal. They may call them trustees or board or whatever. I don't think Peter's point is that you got to call them this. I think the point is how they should operate. But having said that, the word elder is instructive to us. Elders imply an individual where wisdom marks his life. Now, the Bible never specifies an age, but the implication is that this is not a person just starting out. This is not a guy with little or no experience. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 5.22, not to lay hands on anyone 
too quickly. It's significant that Paul ordained elders in the communities where he was instrumental in starting churches. In Acts 14.23, says that Paul installed elders in every church during his first missionary journey. Paul told Titus in Titus 1.5 to ordain elders in every city while he was there on the island of Crete. Now, Peter says, I am a fellow elder. I think this is a little significant. In fact, I think it's really significant. Peter did not pull the apostle card, but he could have rightfully done that. He could have reminded them that he was the leader of the church at Jerusalem. He could have reminded them that he was one of the most influential leaders in the first century church. He could have said, hey, I'm a part of the inner three, the three that Jesus was closest to. Uh, Don't you forget that. I'm the man. No. He could have recalled that he preached in Acts and what happened. 3,000 people were added to the church. Wow. That's pretty cool, right? He could have reminded them that Christ told him that it was upon him that he was going to build the church. He didn't do that either. He would have been factually correct to recall these things, but instead he says, I'm one of you. I'm an elder. He wasn't pulling rank. He was just trying to be one of them. There is something attractive about a man or woman who is not trying to blow their horn. Right? Earlier this year, Joel and I, Joel is our associate pastor. He and I met with a pastor in the region who wanted to meet said he wanted to collaborate with us on something. We met, and it turns out that the meeting was about his success that he's accomplished in his church, and that we could have the opportunity to have them take over our church, rename ourselves their name, be recipients of their expertise in doing church right. The impression was that this small operation here needed help from them, and we could then lose our identity and be privileged to be amalgamated into their machinery. Now listen, I don't claim to know their heart, although I think you get where I'm going with this, okay? And I'm certainly thankful for the success of gospel-preaching churches. However, all leaders are at their best when they come alongside and not as an expert to, you know, help the little people. When we lead well, we value the individual. We encourage them to be their best. Now, we should be most happy when others succeed. But I want you to notice here that Peter is not incorporating a management style on how to use other people to accomplish an agenda. He was a fellow elder on the same level as these spiritual leaders. One young man came to D.L. Moody, and he said, my congregation 
is too small. And Moody said, well, maybe they're as large as you'd like to give account for in the day of judgment. That's good. That thought, I think, is helpful to any pastor who makes the size of the congregation the sign of success. Peter sets the stage for understanding the context of church leaders when he acknowledges two important truths. He says, he's identifying himself as witness the sufferings of Christ and a partaker in his glory. Let's break those down. Peter uses a phrase that I think places him in a humble position with his fellow leaders. He says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Again, instead of connecting himself with his greatest accomplishments, his greatest spiritual successes, and don't we all love to tell a story with us as the center and us as the hero? That is as naturally human as anything is. But he's not doing that. He could have said, uh, I healed a lame beggar and God was using me to do miracles. He could have said, thousands were converted when I preached. But instead, you know what he does? He recalls the season of his greatest blunder. The most painful events of his life were during the sufferings of Jesus. Remember when Christ foretold his sufferings? And we read this. Simon, Simon, who's also Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you knew me. Peter gets upset. But later, we read in the story that he denies Jesus three times, and even on one of those times, he curses. When somebody says, aren't you with Jesus and his band of followers? He curses the person. Peter rejected the idea of a suffering Messiah. Peter's nowhere to be found at the cross during the crucifixion. The facts are, he failed miserably during the height of the suffering of Christ. And instead of putting a positive spin on his failure, instead of ignoring this season of his life, he says, let me tell you who I am. I witnessed the sufferings of Jesus. I saw what Jesus went through, at least part of it. And the Christians in Asia Minor could fill in the gaps of how Peter failed Christ at that time. He was not elevating himself above the church leaders. I mean, if Peter was on Facebook, he would have had his driver's license photo, not one, you know, that was all made nice and beautiful. 
Nobody likes their driver's license photo. <laughs> he acknowledges by implication that he is acutely aware of his failures. Now, we know the rest of the story. It doesn't end with Peter's failure. The resurrection changes Peter's story, and Jesus extends great grace to Peter and gets him on a road to restoration. After the resurrection, we read this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Notice this is the job of a shepherd, a pastor. And he said to him a second time, Simon, the son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. You're going to suffer, Peter. And then he gives him three opportunities after the three denials to affirm, you're going to do the job that I've given you? I have a job for you to be a pastor. I am not putting you on the shelf. Feed my sheep. Shepherd the people of God. This is... Peter filled with mercury. This is the impetuous Peter. This was Peter who cut off the ear of a Roman guard. This was Peter who fell asleep with Jesus in the garden when Jesus asked them to pray. This was Peter who initially rejected the idea of the cross for Jesus. And certainly Peter is now aware of his failings. He was not perfect. And long after the resurrection, Paul even calls him on the carpet for showing grace to the Jews, but not the Gentiles. Yet Peter, who continued to fail, that's the point, was yielded to Christ, willing to learn what God had for him. Now, earlier there was a time in which Peter was worried about his position in the kingdom. Remember Jesus at the Last Supper, and they're all worried about what position they're going to get in the kingdom of God? But those times are gone. Peter is quick to see the seasons of failure to remind him of the sufficiency of Christ. Peter knew that these church leaders have already gone through suffering. They're going to go through more suffering as leaders in the church. Jesus was an example of suffering. Peter has experienced suffering. These believers were not alone. So Peter was a traveler on this spiritual journey with them. He was a pastor who had sinned, repented, and been restored. 
Listen, if Peter can fail so miserably and be restored, what does that say to us? So can we be restored, any of us, no matter what your past. He was a fellow struggler who would share in the glory of Christ. He was a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Now, he doesn't specify what this glory is, but I think we can see a, a future and a past sense to this glory. The future sense is the glory of future reward that Peter's spoken about numerous times in the book. In 1 Peter 1.7, he talks about faith that's been tested that results in glory when Christ is revealed. He speaks of subsequent glories in chapter 1, verse 11. And in chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, he says, we will be glad when Christ's glory will be revealed, implying our sharing of that glory. The event is the coming of Christ. It's when Christ will dole out rewards to faithful followers, and we're going to share in glory with Christ. All this is because of God's goodness, God's provision, and it gives Christians eternal motivation to endure the temporary trials on earth. Our temporary suffering on earth can result in eternal glory. The other aspect of Peter being a partaker in Christ's glory is that he was a witness of the transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. This was early in the time of Jesus with his disciples. And led him up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Now, that word does not mean a like a light shining from heaven upon Jesus. It's actually a term from which we get metamorphosis. It's actually a, a change from the inside out. So what it means is that Jesus was allowing his glory of what was really on the inside to be revealed on the outside. That's who he really was. And it says his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them with a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So here was Peter, taken up on the mount. And there Jesus pulled back the veil of his flesh, and the Shekinah glory of God was manifest. And these three men fell over as dead men under the power of Christ's holy brilliance. Peter's saying, I have seen 
some of this glory that is to be revealed. I've partaken of it. I've seen a preview of that glory. And because of the intense suffering and persecution that you guys have faced, the need for pastoral leadership is crucial. And it's to be attached to motivation that will outweigh the pain. And sharing Christ's glory is that motivation. Herbert Chilstrom wrote, Funerals of pastors are solemn affairs. At times when I attend one, however, I am struck by a strange kind of irony. After a lifetime of ministry supposedly focused on grace, we bring the poor soul to his grave with eloquent eulogies and high tributes that give the lie to it all. All the deceased's good works are magnified and, of course, shortcomings passed over. I'm reminded at such times of Lincoln's remark at the burial of one of his generals. If he had known he'd get a funeral like this, he'd have died much sooner. <laughs> he goes on to say it's our vexing temptation, isn't it? Not only in death, but throughout life. We think we are a gift to God himself instead of remembering that ministry is a gift to us. End quote. Listen, all servants whether you lead in the church or you're a plumber, must come to grips that life is a stewardship from Christ. We will have failures. The question is whether our failures will lead to greater humility and growth or greater blaming and irresponsibility. To those who humbly mature and endure the words well done by the Lord after our life ends will be infinitely more valuable than a grand eulogy at our funeral. Let's pray.